state? Why do we have to worry about our friends, our teachers, our families? Why do my parents have to wonder whether both their kids will make it home? Why do I have to worry about walking into my high school in the morning and being wheeled out just a body in a bag in the afternoon? As my colleagues spoke here, one or two children have died in Yemen of man-made causes. I say man-made because most of these decisions are made by men. At the same time, there's 20 million Yemenis who need some sort of humanitarian assistance. Half of those, 10 million Yemenis, are on the brink of starvation on something that we can stop. And when I say we, I mean the U.S. government. When you don't know history, you don't know that workers have really tried to overthrow the economic system and tried to replace it with something more communal, something where agriculture is redesigned, where schools and all of that are redeveloped from the perspective of, of mass participation from the bottom. Like, they don't know what that is. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and as always, we have a jam-packed show for you today. This is the third week of the month as we go to broadcast, and we've pulled together our first 2018 episode of The F Word when we talk about fascism. Professor Margaret Stevens, author of the tremendous new book, Red International and Black Caribbean, joins us for a discussion that you don't want to miss and the students, one million strong, marching around the country to demand sensible gun laws. So we have voices of students speaking outside the U.S. Capitol this week. And so much more for you today, starting with our headlines. A federal district court in California ruled this week that President Donald Trump's Environmental Protection Agency is violating the law by not implementing crucial smog protection guidelines mandated under the Clean Air Act. According to Judge Haywood Sterling Gilliam Jr. of the Federal District Court for the District of Northern California, EPA Chief Scott Pruitt broke the law by not listing areas in the country that are failing to comply with pollution standards. Gilliam gave him until April 30th to list those areas publicly. Mary Ann Hitt, director of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign, said that Pruitt's failure to comply with air rules are a matter of life and death and puts the health of thousands of kids at risk. California Attorney General Xavier Becerra said in a statement that smog-reducing requirements will save hundreds of lives and prevent 230,000 asthma attacks among children. He added that his office will closely monitor the EPA to make sure it complies with the court's order. Now, on this week, which marks the 10th anniversary of the 2008 Wall Street crash, several corporate Democrats joined with Republicans to pass legislation that rolls back many of the bank regulations passed after the 2008 economic crisis. Just before the vote, Senator Elizabeth Warren took to the Senate floor with one last appeal against the rollback. What does it say about Washington Republicans and Democrats that can't come together to support common sense gun reforms or solutions for working families, but can come together to deregulate big banks on the 10th anniversary of the start of the 2008 financial crisis? Here's what I think it says. 
Washington has become completely disconnected from the real problems in people's lives. This place works great for people who can hire armies of fancy lobbyists and write big checks, but it doesn't work for anyone else. Warren introduced new legislation, the ending Too Big to Fail Jail Act, that she said would fight Wall Street greed. Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii also announced proposed legislation called the Return to Prudent Banking Act. The Senate may also vote next week on a joint resolution that would end U.S. funding and other support for Saudi Arabia's bombing campaign in Yemen, which has killed thousands of civilians, including children, sickened a million people with cholera, and is leading to starvation and famine. Activists who support the resolution by Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont, Mike Lee of Utah, and Christopher Murphy of Connecticut protested this week on Capitol Hill, saying that a rival bill suddenly proposed is an attempt to derail this effort to stop the war. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, spoke at a press conference on Capitol Hill on March 12th. This is an issue that has not gotten a lot of attention in the mainstream press. It's been hard to get the American people to really know about the catastrophe in Yemen. And so this has really been a grassroots effort. And when I think that this week we're going to get a chance to vote on this resolution, we are just really pumped up um, that we could win a historic vote uh, that could say no to the U.S. government military participation. Well, then all of a sudden, out of left wing, right wing, who knows, comes Jean Shaheen, who says, we've got something different that we want to add, which uh, for um, the way they wrote it, uh, really amounts to a continuation of the status quo of U.S. support for uh, this war in Yemen. Under the War Powers Resolution, the Senate Majority Leaders cannot block a debate and vote on this legislation. Now for more international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the historian and prolific author, Gerald Horn. Well, as you know, Gerald, and as just mentioned in the previous segment, there is proposed legislation and pressure by activists here in Washington to end U.S. aid for Saudi Arabia's bombing of Yemen. But Britain is also complicit in funding the Saudi devastation of Yemen. And so there is related news out of Britain this week and more coming coming from across the pond. You are correct. Uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman just visited London and inked the deal whereby Jets will be sent from manufacturing facilities in Great Britain to Saudi Arabia, which doubtlessly will be used for the bombing campaign in Yemen. Mohammed bin Salman is also on his way to the United States for similar malign purposes. You know, in addition to the issue with Yemen and the Saudis, you know, Britain is really in the news right now because of this this alleged chemical attack of a, a Russian who was spying for the U.K., a Russian spy or former Russian spy and his daughter have been apparently injured severely from a kind of nerve agent or chemical warfare that Theresa May, the prime minister, is tracing back to Moscow, although I'm sure listeners should recognize that this agent could have been manufactured anywhere. In fact, where this alleged spy was found is only 
12 miles from the major British facility for manufacturing such nerve agents. That may be a coincidence. But in any case, I would point listeners to Consortium News and also for Johnson's Russian List, which I get through email, but I'm sure they have a Facebook page for a an alternative point of view with regard to this crisis, which is rapidly spinning out of control. I think the context is that Theresa May is a weak prime minister. She's derided from all sides, uh, derided as Theresa maybe, maybe not, derided as <laughs> Theresa May Day. And this crisis with Russia causes many in Britain to rally around the flag and rally around the prime minister, who's facing a challenge internally from her foreign minister, Boris Johnson, who, by the way, in this Thursday's Washington Post, had an op-ed basically calling for a crackdown on Moscow. You should also know that the Confederation of British Industries, which has been a stalwart supporter of the Tory party of Theresa May, has been making soundings about supporting the Labour Party, not least because the Confederation of British Industries is so upset about the British exit from the European Union, which the Tory party helped to engineer, and which they feel that the Labour Party will negotiate a better deal with Brussels, that is to say, with the European Union. And so Theresa May is under a lot of pressure, and this crisis with Russia has come like mana from heaven because she feels it will help to shore up her sagging poll numbers. But she may have underestimated the severity of this crisis because according to the Financial Times, a significant percentage of natural gas that keeps British homes warm actually comes from Russia. But that leads us to the other issue, which is that the underlying tension between Moscow and Washington is over energy markets and the fact that the United States is not only becoming a major exporter of oil, it's becoming a major exporter of liquefied natural gas and would like to ease Russia's companion enterprises out of that lucrative market. And this crisis with Russia may help in that regard. I should also say that this crisis is also, according to Theresa May's thinking, may be leading her to have more leverage in negotiating with Brussels over the exit package from the European Union. It's certainly putting more pressure on Germany, the major force in the European Union, which has multiple business deals with Russia, including with regard to natural gas. So a lot of this crisis comes full circle because it's not only dealing with the military industrial complex, but also energy and every time a crisis like this happens, everything's equivocated with war. And, and these seemingly petty crises become more dangerous because of the rhetoric used. Like the, this attack which injured this man and his daughter is an invasion. And you heard some people in Parliament talking about retaliating militarily, putting more military on the border of Russia, getting NATO involved. And it really just starts to sound like a madhouse. So even though it seems unsubstantiated, it just becomes very serious when you're talking about a possible military action. You know, the same happened here when there were alleged cyber attacks, that these cyber attacks allegedly by Russia were tantamount to a declaration of war 
uh, tantamount to a, a war attack. So it's, it seems like every different angle being tried every which way to say we're being attacked by Russia and so we need to attack them. Well, two points. One, the Trump team's recent nuclear posture review lowered the threshold for use of nuclear weapons. Supposedly, a cyber attack on the United States could give rise to the use of nuclear weapons, according to this new Trump doctrine. And secondly, recall that just a few weeks ago, we talked on these airwaves about Mr. Putin unveiling these new weapons in Russia's arsenal, including underwater drones and missiles that could evade the U.S. anti-missile defense. So this crisis has to be taken very seriously as a result. Well, we are definitely taking this seriously, and we will continue to cover these and other unreported or underreported stories in the coming weeks and months. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, activist, author, Professor Gerald Horn, whose most recent book is The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And finally in culture and media, a new documentary about the Pan-African movement premiered recently at Howard University. Chantel James attended and filed this report. Crampton Auditorium was filled with the colorful African garb of excited moviegoers who had come to see a highly anticipated feature. No, it wasn't Black Panther, and this was not Wakanda, as chair of Howard's Department of African American Studies, Greg Carr, reminded everyone. Rather, this film, Shrikiana Aina's Footprints of Pan-Africanism, chronicles the real-life Pan-Africanist liberation efforts of giant figures like Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah. It also follows everyday people like expat dentist Robert Lee, who came to live on the African continent in search of his diasporic roots. In many ways, the movie is a snapshot of a moment in Ghana's history, when the hopes of all of post-colonial Africa seemed projected onto its stage. The film showing was followed by a Q&A with the filmmaker. Here, Ina places her work within a framework of hope, highlighting past victories of Africans in the diaspora. I hope that this film encourages people to realize that we do win. Here we are. Slavery did not not discontinue our existence. Who gets through that? And I think, you know, my husband right now is trying to scrape up pennies to do a movie about the Maroons. How many of us know, and what if our kids knew, that uh, the Maroons... The Maroon phenomenon was here in America. Yes, Jamaica. But in America, yes, uh, Brazil. But in America, Virginia, Florida, Texas, independent, self-governed territories. We had our, our own button factory. There were expert horsemen in America. So dig, sister, just dig deep. Internalize yourself and spread it and don't give up. Thank you. The film showing was sponsored by Howard's Departments of English and of African American Studies. From Howard University, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, students say, hey, hey, disarm the NRA. Stay with us. Mama, I'm paranoid from the police guys. Because the police man might take my life. What's freedom of speech without my rights? 
participating in today but we can all agree in an ideal world none of us would be here in an ideal world the 21st graders and kindergartners who died in Sandy Hook would be in middle school today in an ideal world the 58 concert goers who were gunned down in Las Vegas would have gone home and returned to be with their families in an ideal world the 32 students who died at Virginia Tech would be employed professionals and the 17 victims from Stoneman Douglas would probably be eating lunch at school right now and the only thing they'd be worrying about was a test for next period. But unfortunately, this isn't the case. Unfortunately, we live in a country where lawmakers are more concerned about their contributions from the NRA than they are about the lives of their own constituents. And thanks to people like them, you and I have to go to school every day and wonder in the back of our minds if we'll even make it to graduation. That shouldn't happen. So, we the students of the United States have a message for all of you in Congress. If you don't give us stricter background checks, heavier restrictions on AR-15 style weapons, and easier access to mental health institutions and resources, you will pay dearly at the ballot box. By this November, most of us are 18 today. And the rest, a lot of us will also be 18 by November. And that's when midterm elections start. So I can promise you this. Do your jobs. Give us concrete solutions, and for once, value our lives over your bank accounts, and we will fuck you up. This is about human life. This is about the children who have lost their lives to gun violence. So I ask our Republican lawmakers, is their right to have a gun more important than our right to live? We're not here to take away the Second Amendment. We are here to make sure that those who are not fit to carry a weapon do not carry a weapon. On average, 46 children and teens are shot every day. And out of those 46, seven die. And so I ask again, are their right to carry a weapon more important than our right to live? No! Since January of last year, our country has been more divided than ever. But the people have had enough. The activist community has been very prominent. We have the Black Lives Matter movement. And now we all come together for this gun control movement. This movement does not limit to one race or ethnicity. 
in this because our communities have been dealing with this issue for so long. Y para mis hermanos y mis hermanas de países hispanohablantes.
And when I mentioned it to my coworker, he said that he understood that he's had this happen to him before, that usually he needs to sit down when this type of thing happens to him. How many will it take? This is what we say to each other. How many will it take? Like this is some science experiment that we have to repeat over and over again to come to a conclusion. We've had enough evidence that there needs to be change. We have had enough evidence for a while that there needs to be change. I'm entering a time in my life that Jamari never got to see. I am going to graduate high school soon, something that those 17 kids from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas will never get to see. At least I hope I get to see these milestones. I go to school each day, and on some days I think about which windows I will jump out of if my school were the next example of a broken system. This is the mindset that students around our country are forced to experience because our lives don't outweigh money or votes. Colloquial wisdom states that if something is important to you, you'll find a way, and if not, you'll find an excuse. That's why we will find a way when we are faced with many excuses. We will not let money carve tombstones. Children of the world, are you ready? Are you happy? Are you happy? Are you happy? Tell me why. Colder than July, the milkman don't stop by. To bring my high fruit to score still. My brother is dead and daddy bring me back. In the bag full of dead. I know what is wrong with my problems. I think it is me. I think it is she. I think there's something wrong with this damn country in which I'm living in. Constitution paying dividends. All these intellectuals surround me. So peripheral, all around my vocal. My vocal is disrupted, interrupted. Speed coming, Jackson's, you know what's coming. Planes hijacked, and I got people in the back, and I got people in Afghanistan. Never coming back. What's going on, my man? Haven't seen you in a while, brother. Tell me, tell me what's up. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and this is the third week of the month for us as we go to broadcast. And so this is the week we have committed to our segment, The F Word, when we talk about fascism. Joining me for this month's discussion is Margaret Stevens, professor of history at Essex County College in Newark, New Jersey. Her new book is Red International and Black Caribbean, Communists in New York City, Mexico, and the West Indies. 1919 to 1939. Welcome to On the Ground, Professor. Thanks so much. Can I call you Margaret? Absolutely. Okay. So there have been two dominant strains in these discussions about fascism on the F word. One utilizes George Jackson's definition about fascism being the complete control of the state by monopoly capital, 
when the relationship between the state and the corporation becomes indiscernible. And the other strain has looked at the state of totalitarianism and violence that African and indigenous people have lived under in the United States. But then we've also talked a little bit about, not that much, but a little bit about the U.S. exporting this totalitarianism and violence to other parts of the world, especially in this hemisphere. So that brings me to the wealth of history that you uncover in your new book. So I wonder if you can first start with some examples of this repression and resistance in this hemisphere uncovered between World War One and World War Two. Well, that's a biggie. I think part of what I was grappling with in this book around the question of fascism, directly tied to the question of communism, of course, is a few things. Number one is that fascism always carries within it the need to repress communism. So historically speaking, anywhere where fascism has ever occurred, it's always occurred in the context of part of its agenda, first and foremost before anything, attacking whatever communist movement or group or whatever is rising in that context or in that location, Germany, wherever. So I was looking at the Caribbean because my book is about communists um, based out of New York who were doing a lot of organizing alongside sometimes in response to black workers in the Caribbean who were fighting against colonialism and super exploitation in the Caribbean. And often, you know, these black workers in the Caribbean were fighting against U.S. capitalists, but sometimes they were fighting against British or whatever, you know, European imperialists was in their area. So with respect to fascism, you know, it's a really important question because there are two places where I look specifically at fascism. And I was looking at Cuba and the Dominican Republic. Haiti is tied in there as well. So it's Haiti, Cuba, and the DR in the period from maybe 33 to 37. 37 is the sort of climax of a particular fascist moment because it's when President Rafael Trujillo of the Dominican Republic oversees and mandates the slaughter of over 30,000 Haitian people on the Dominican side of the border. And that was in 1937 when that happened. Some people are familiar with that. Some people aren't. Okay. I was just going to say, if you could just tell us more about it, fill that out some more for those of us who don't know that history. Specifically, Trujillo was a Mussolini supporter. I think I, I heard he had a picture of Mussolini on his office desk or something like that. You know, Mussolini's considered the father of fascism out of Italy. Trujillo, embedded in every fascist movement, is not only anti-communism, but deep-seated racism on some level. There's always some group that's targeted as, you know, the sort of the racist scapegoat of whatever the repression is to justify it. So in this case, Trujillo's racism was built specifically against the Haitian population for any number of reasons I'm going to get into in a second. Now, in the context of the United States, Trujillo was sort of born by the United States, right? So when the U.S. invaded Haiti and the DR during World War One, they trained a bunch of militia guys in both Haiti and the DR to go and run those governments in those countries for them. And they did that in Haiti, and they did that in the DR, and Trujillo was the product of that. So Trujillo was trained in the U.S. He was proud of his U.S. military credentials, came back to the DR, and was basically handed the plate as president of the country. And his job was to do exactly what he did, repress radicalism, and basically allow for some level of United States investment, economic on the island. And that's who he was. And, of course, he took it to a whole nother level. So part of what I was looking at was the tragedy of what we call the popular front in the communist movement. And the popular front is the period in communist history when communists decided 
to change their approach to fighting capitalism and building revolution, and they decided they've got to build broader alliances with more folks because fascism around the world was requiring that communists, you know, have alliances with bourgeois capitalists, you know, with Britain, if need be, France, all these United States, Roosevelt, because they figured they had to take on Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, and Spain. So they changed their approach. So my question was sort of what does that mean when you look at fascism at the local level in places like Haiti and the DR? So there's a story that I'm telling in this book, and it's a story, it's the sort of climax of the book, and it points towards how in the pre-popular front period in the early 30s, the communists were at the forefront of the anti-racist internationalist movement in the Caribbean. So in the early 30s, there's this huge general strike movement going on in Cuba, and communists, along with all these other folks, are vying for the leadership of the country. Who's going to seize power? The guy in charge, the president, has been ousted. The communists lose that fight. But the communists in the early mid-30s in Cuba had a huge role organizing workers from across the island, black workers on the eastern side of the island, industrial workers in the railroad industry on the western side where Havana is located. And it was a really beautiful moment in Cuban history. Part of what made it possible for Castro to come to power a couple decades later, in fact, was sort of his radicalism in the 30s that took place in Cuba, in large part under the communist movement and communist leadership, to the point where you had black immigrants coming in from Haiti and Jamaica working in Cuba who were actually identified as red guards in the surveillance reports, like Jamaican red guards who were defending confiscated sugar refineries that the communists had led the takeovers of. And and that's how the deep, the anti-racism and internationalism was in Cuba at that time. Then what happens, though, of course, is that several things happen globally and locally. And in Cuba, the guy who ends up coming to power is not a communist. In fact, he's a serious reactionary. Batista, right, is one of the guys who come to power. And in that context, the communists lose a lot of grip and influence in the island, and they end up, along with this whole popular front shift in strategy, they end up agreeing to something called the 50% law in Cuba. And the 50% law was a law that said that 50% of every job needs to go to a Cuban. And if you're not a Cuban, you know you you can't work in this particular industry past 50%. So this is deeply xenophobic, racist, because most of the immigrants in Cuba were from the black Caribbean. They're black workers from Barbados, Jamaica, Haiti, da 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 So part of what the communists indirectly end up supporting, even though they didn't want to, but they did it as part of their popular front strategy in Cuba, is they end up basically supporting the mass deportation of tens of thousands of Haitians and Jamaicans back to their islands. And in the context of Haiti, what this means, this is maybe 1934-35, this means mass Haitians deported back to Haiti at the height of the Depression, right? The Depression is a global depression. So it's not only bad in the U.S., it's bad in the Caribbean. So a lot of these folks being deported back to Haiti, still looking for work, are crowding the borders of the DR, many more even normal going into the DR. This is the context in which Trujillo orders the mass slaughter of over 30,000 Haitians in 1937. But part of the point that I was trying to make in this book is that both Haiti and the DR, the presidents on both islands, right at the moment where, you know, the United States is withdrawing their Marines, the presidents on both islands agreed to an anti-communist ban on their islands, right? So in other words, in like 35, 36, the presidents on both Haiti and the DR side of the island 
agreed to repress the communist movements in their island. And what this means, of course, is that the workers' movement is weakened, the anti-racist movement is weakened, because the communists were always at the forefront of building worker solidarity and fighting racism. I guess part of what I was trying to show in my book, the complexity of the situation is that in response to this mass slaughter, you've got communists in New York by 1937, you know, writing to the president of the United States during the popular front, like, Your Excellency, you know, President Roosevelt, we're so bothered by, disturbed by this news that we're hearing that our brethren in Haiti have been slaughtered. But the point is, you know, they're writing friendly, respectful letters to the president because it's a popular front when 30,000 people have just been killed. This is the complexity, right? Because they know fascism is growing all over the world. The primary concern is that at any moment Hitler could invade Poland or invade the Soviet Union. So the communists everywhere are like, listen, we got to pick our battles wisely, right? And if we need Roosevelt on our side, we can't go calling him a fascist or saying, you know, your regime put this fascist in power. But at the same time, what do you do when 30,000 black workers have just been killed, right? So... My point at all was never to discredit the communist movement. Part of the point of my book is the first sentence is that a truth little known and even less understood is that communists have been at the forefront of the fight against racism. So that's the dialectical contradiction I'm looking at. It's a very long-winded way to answer your question. But, you know, in terms of fascism at the local level, I was simply trying to say that communists were at one time trying to be at the forefront of fighting that fascism, but at the same time they made serious concessions to the fascist movement that a lot of people don't necessarily know about. You know, that's so interesting because when you were talking about that history, because I think a lot of people don't know about the slaughter of the 30,000 Haitians at that time, just like a lot of people don't know that before Hitler all the atrocities in Europe, there were atrocities in Namibia, in Africa. So there's been a whole history written about that. And it just seems to me there's this parallel between the run-up to so many things happening in Europe happening already to people of color in other parts of the globe. And that history is just not known. We're taught World War II begins in 39 when Hitler invades Poland, and that's true on some level, but we're always taught that World War begins when Europeans fight other Europeans. And so the problematic, basic, fundamental racism of that is so obvious, and Du Bois talked about that in Darkwater. You know, when he said, listen, no, World War I began when they scrambled for Africa, and they split Africa up, and somebody got the raw end of the deal. And I think the same thing is true with World War II. I mean, honestly speaking, when you look at World War II, fascism's first serious military act was when Mussolini dropped bombs on Ethiopia, which they called Abyssinia back then in 1935. Like, once Mussolini bombed, you know, Ethiopians and poured mustard gas, this is really like one of the first times they were using airplanes. They were experimenting with airplane technology on these Africans, the the only African kingdom that hadn't been colonized. So, That had a huge impact on black people all over the world. I'll never forget when I met this guy a couple years ago at a Congressional Black Congress um, conference in D.C. some years ago. He was a veteran from World War II, and he told me how he had actually left Mississippi in 36 and went north to try to get to Ethiopia so he could fight you know, for the Ethiopians, but the U.S. government wasn't letting anybody leave to go fight for Ethiopia. He couldn't get permission to leave the country, you understand? Mm -hmm. But 
you know, somehow folks were able to assemble to go to Spain when fascism rose in Spain the next year. You had something called the Abraham Lincoln Brigades where black and white folks got together to fight to defend Spain. So part of the point that I'm making is simply that what we identify with fascism, it's a somewhat racist, Eurocentric assumption because not only do we eliminate the anti-communist aspect of what fascism has always been predicated upon, but we also eliminate the way in which people of color have usually been the practicing test ground or the more fundamental actual political economic basis for why these Europeans end up fighting each other in the first place. So, you know, I was trying to make that point as well in the book. Okay. On that note, we're going to take a brief break. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm in conversation with Margaret Stevens, professor of history at Essex County College in Newark, New Jersey. And we're in conversation for this month's episode of The F Word about fascism. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and this is our third week of the month. And so we're in our segment, The F Word, when we talk about fascism. Joining me for this month's discussion is Margaret Stevens, professor of history at Essex County College in Newark, New Jersey. And her new book is Red International and Black Caribbean, Communists in New York City, Mexico, and the West Indies, 1919 to 1939. So, Margaret, before the break, we were talking about just how different histories are written around world wars and and how the history of people of color, African, black people, indigenous people are often kind of cut out of that. And also how the repression and violence toward communists are often left out of the histories about fascism. So one of the brilliant things, I think, in your book is your analysis of how early in the last century, the 20th century, after the Russian Revolution, the resistance by black uh, people in the Caribbean pushed the international communist movement to broaden its ideas about struggle, revolution, and freedom. So talk a little bit about how black people's struggles broaden the international movement's ideas and also how some of those movements impacted the United States. Each chapter deals with a sort of specific moment in a specific island. So in the early chapter chapter one, I was talking about how, as a classic example, if you were to go to Trinidad or Jamaica, 
even British, Dutch, Guyana. What was happening is that black folks in 1919 were refusing to load United Fruit Company ships. They were refusing to load the British Fruit Company ships. They were all in general strike mode. Everybody was in protest mode in the direct aftermath of World War One. in part because a lot of these guys were coming home from World War One and they were radical, the, the veterans, but in part just because it was an entire moment of working class upheaval, in part inspired by the Russian Revolution. Just word of mouth, people were hearing all over the world about this, and so it was inspiring black folks. Now, what impact does this have on communists in New York? In the very early period, in the early 20s, what begins to happen, as many people are familiar with, Marcus Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association. They're also familiar with what's called the African Blood Brotherhood, which is another group. In any case, the group ABB, African Blood Brotherhood, closely gets affiliated with the communist movement, sort of teams up with them. But what happens is that all these guys, Garvey, Domingo, the the Brotherhood, they're all circulating their news. Did you say who Domingo was? Wilfred Domingo. I just said his name in passing. So Domingo was an early writer. He wrote for Garvey's paper. He knew Garvey back in Jamaica, um, but he came to New York actually before Garvey. He actually put Garvey on. So when Garvey came to Harlem, Domingo showed him the ropes, showed him where to speak, set him up and things like that. Then Garvey launched off and did his own thing pretty quickly. Domingo, though, decided to move to the left. He wasn't really convinced of the black capitalism argument that Garvey was putting forward, and he veered more towards, you know, what was happening in Russia and decided that, you know, internationalism and that workers' power, what we call Bolshevism, right, the sort of Bolshevik revolution led by the Russian revolutionaries, that he sort of felt like that was a a more feasible route for leadership for black people from all over the world. So Domingo and a bunch of these guys, they're writing their own newspapers. These newspapers are getting circulated not just in Harlem, which is what most people focus on, but also in the Caribbean. When these newspapers make it to the Caribbean, all these letters start coming into these papers and they're being published. And and these guys from the Caribbean are saying, hey, listen, we love your paper, but it's hard to get it in here because the British keep (laughs) preventing everything from coming. They're like, we're trying to read this paper. We're trying to read Garvey's paper. But listen, all this stuff is being banned. Like, we're getting arrested the second they find out that your paper even made it to our office. But listen, send us everything. Send Send us everything you got. Send us. We don't care if it's Garvey, da, 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 just send us all this stuff because we've never seen any of it before. And it's interesting because in Harlem, these guys are stabbing each other. They're killing each other. Are you a communist or are you a nationalist? What's your angle? But in the Caribbean, they're just like loving all of it. Like we heard you guys are beefing back home, but we don't understand why you're beefing in Harlem because here, all of this stuff sounds good to us. So two things real quick. In this part of the book, I'm really struck by, number one, the influence of journalism, but also talk a little bit about the dichotomy. It sounds like you were saying, actually, antagonism between uh, Garveyism and the communists, the black communists, people on the left who believed in Bolshevism in New York during that time. Yeah, and a lot of people talk about that, and they love to focus on the antagonism, and the antagonism was real. But part of what I'm saying in my book is that it's not quite a false dichotomy, but it's a bit more complicated. So classic example, Garvey was trying to figure out where the headquarters of the UNIA should be. And these folks who are more to the left of him in the Blood Brotherhood were saying, listen, you know, Harlem is not the geographical headquarters of the diaspora in this hemisphere. Like, if you want to be centrally located for the black folk all over this hemisphere, you kind of got to be in the Caribbean. Like, why would you be in Harlem when we got folks down in the southern Brazil 
all the way up to Canada. Like, you really are supposed to be in the West Indies. Like, they were having these debates back then. And, you know, the Brotherhood was coming at it from a more internationalist perspective. They're like, listen, like, we've got followers from all over who are part of this new Negro movement. And, you know, even a little further than that, that was, you know, 1920. But 1929, I'll never forget that Garvey had visited Cuba in the direct aftermath of him visiting Cuba and visiting with a bunch of black workers on the island. Garvey was being pushed to the left. There was so much radicalism going on in these islands and people were being attracted to communism that even Garvey had to go to these islands and start talking to workers about striking and protesting and things. So he visited Cuba in 29, and just after he visited Cuba, a bunch of black workers set a plantation on fire in Cuba. So there was a huge sabotage of the harvest, the sugar harvest, after Garvey left. And the funny thing is that I found that information as part of the State Department surveillance reports under a section called Communist Activities in Cuba. So even the State Department filed Garvey's inciting of a riot under communist activities in Cuba because that's how messy it was back then. And so Garvey and the communists were definitely arguing about the future, you know, what direction this momentum and energy is supposed to go in. But at any particular moment, depending on what part of the world that you're looking at where black workers were in rebellion, the lines weren't as clearly cut. And these folks were looking for leaders. We're kind of running out of time. I know we we could probably have 10 more conversations about this, and that's an idea. We definitely need to revisit this. But another thing that I really loved about the book is how you were talking about how today's black and brown activists are hindered by not knowing this history of resistance and victories, you know, won by people in Jamaica, Haiti, Mexico, just in so many places um, at the start of the last century. So I want you to talk a little bit about kind of the success that the left, that communists had in terms of fighting for, for racial justice, you know, especially with the case of the Scottsboro Boys in 1931, you know, accused of rape and, and then how that could relate to today's movement for black lives and, and, and just the, the analysis of how we look at our struggle today. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you look at sort of what was sparked through Mike Brown and then the Baltimore killing in each case, similar to the Scottsboro case in 1931, it, it wasn't exactly identical because the nine boys in Scottsboro weren't killed by the police, but it's still the, the blatant racism of the court system and the just so-called justice system in this country that either kills or incarcerates and threatens to kill young black men at will. And that's pretty much in this country always been the basis for black rebellion. There's very few cases where it wasn't because of a black man being killed, whether it was King. <laughs> it's always just sort of some black man being killed, you know, through the justice system or threat and that, that sparks these things. And I think that the difference is that with 31, part of my fascination with Scottsboro, because that's also not something new. Many people have talked about the Scottsboro boys case and the role of communists and defending the Scottsboro boys. It's all true. But what was so fascinating to me was simply that, you know, in Mexico, you had, under communist leadership, you had Mexican workers sending petitions to their president demanding that the Scottsboro Boys be acquitted. Like, so in what world do you have a bunch of Mexican workers aligning themselves with the plight of black, you know, men from Alabama? And, you know, one of the mothers of those boys, you know, through the communist leadership went to Mexico to 
to speak to the Mexicans about the plight of black workers in the U.S. This is all before the popular front gets big. And so they're still doing really radical work back in the early 30s. And, and these Mexican workers are aligning themselves with this. Diego Rivera, who's a famous Mexican painter and radical, goes to Harlem and says, you know, there's a Scottsboro in every country. Just understanding that he, it's not quite true, right, because there's a certain way that the super exploitation of black people in this country has been somewhat unique. But his point was simply that state-sanctioned violence against people and usually with some sort of racist basis for it is true everywhere. So in Mexico, it's the indigenous population, like you said. So you've got folks in Mexico supporting the Scottsboro Boys. You've got folks getting arrested in Haiti defending Scottsboro Boys. They're being arrested by their own black government for defending mm. these black boys. And this is all part of the communist movement. None of this is happening spontaneously. All of this is happening because of the coordination and leadership that, you know, communists are offering these different parts of the world. And I think that for today's young people, they don't know what centralized anti-capitalist revolutionary leadership is. So, you know, they're trying to carry on these amazing campaigns that are so valiant and, you know, so much energy and so much beauty and creativity. That's the beauty of this this new Black Lives Matter movement was the problem though was that was it was just missing what I would call, you know, vanguard leadership. Like there was no central organization fighting for something deeper than that particular issue. And, you know, they began to articulate, some of their leaders began to articulate a platform and goals. But, you know, short of revolution in a new society, it's hard to have a vision. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that that's just part of the problem is that that this generation doesn't know the history of revolution in the 20th century. They don't know much about Russia or China or Cuba. They just don't know history. So when you don't know history, you don't know that workers have really tried to overthrow the economic system and tried to replace it with something more communal, something where agriculture is redesigned, where schools and all of that are redeveloped from the perspective of mass participation from the bottom. Like they don't know what that is. So, trying to build a mass movement around something like the police brutality against black folks in this country, absent of a more revolutionary group that's leading it, it's hard because there's no coordination. I, I really think that that's a problem. And, you know, I'm involved in it, though. I deal with these young people. I'm here. I'm, I know all the Black Lives Matter kids in my neighborhood or, you know, in my city. And they're dope. They're beautiful young people, you know, but they don't really understand what it is to be anti-capitalist. So that's what I would say. But I could talk about that forever, too. Well, you know, I was actually also thinking, not just in terms of the movement for Black Lives. I mean, for this show, we talk about a lot of different movements and a lot of different issues. And even if you take this week, all the young people marching here in D.C. and around the country against gun violence, but not necessarily understanding the link between gun violence here and our wars abroad. You know, some of them are making the link between uh, the gun violence and the NRA and, and actually are very vocal about the NRA basically corrupting the electoral system and politicians and talking about basically money and politics and as if that is really stamping out the evil, if you can get rid of that. But it's not really looking at the overall system. When you look at corporate media that is not only not making those links, but is steadfast against that type of analysis, it's really hard for people to get the kind of education they need because most people are getting their education from media, from movies, from all types of information outlets that really aren't 
giving anything that's, you know, close to like really what's happening. <laughs> so, No, absolutely. I mean, and when you look at gun violence, I mean, so the whole point, part of what happens when you look at revolutionary history is you see that when workers don't seize power and we don't win and the people in charge stay in charge, everything we fought for gets turned on its opposite anyway. We've got Trump in office. You think these people wouldn't consider quarantining Chicago or quarantining Newark? Like, these folks will take our demands and turn them on their opposite, and they'll say, you're right, you know, the gun violence is so bad. Let's just lock Chicago down. Give us 36 hours to lock down the city, and let's just do a mass, you know, search for all the guns in the city because we're listening to you, young people. We see how serious you are about this gun problem. Something that looks radical on the surface can very easily be turned into fascist repression, whether your intentions were that or not. Even labor organizers will say that we win these victories. And a lot of these things that we just consider basic labor rights were won by the left, were won by socialists and communists in the 30s. And many of those things are being rolled back. So if they do go on strike now, they find that a few years later, they have to go back and like re-win the same victory. And so there's just just a realization among a lot of people that it is is so systemic that the, the reforms, they're not permanent. That's it. They, then that's not satisfactory. Anyway, on that note, I want to say thank you to Professor Margaret Stevens for joining me today. She's professor of history at Essex County College in Newark, New Jersey. Her new book is Red International and Black Caribbean, Communists in New York City, Mexico, and the West Indies. 1919 to 1939. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks. And that will do it for today's show. Certainly the more we know both our history and our present, the better we are equipped to live today and fight for a future. The music we played today included I Can't Breathe by The Crossroads featuring Chaz French, What About by Dem Atlas, and Change of the Guard by Kamasi Washington. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Thanks for tuning in. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>